A strong force of attraction. Covalent bonds, ionic bonds, the coming together of atoms and molecules to form compounds. Well, chemical bonds are what make matter matter. Bonds are what hold the physical world together, what hold us together. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got it. Bonds. Your test score says otherwise. It tells me you don't get it at all. Yeah, but, I mean, 58, I was close. <coughs> <coughs> what is close? There's no close in science, Barry. There are right answers and wrong answers. Close didn't put men on the moon. Yeah, but I'm just saying, Mr. White, two points. Look, if I don't pass chemistry, I have to go to summer school. And, I mean, I really studied, like, really all night hard. And, I mean, I'm so into chemistry for, like, the concepts. I just think I might have, you know, the attention deficit. Couldn't you please just let this slide? Don't bullshit a bullshitter. The answer is no. Next time, apply yourself. No, we we cannot let this one slide, Paul. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to apply ourselves. And actually, I, I play this clip um, partly because I think that the idea of science telling us, you know, right and wrong answers and, and there not being room for gray area is a bit of a misunderstanding. Um particularly in sports science, we're often dealing with theories and hypothesis, um, tiny parts of a much more complex organism and minuscule sample sizes. And, and this doesn't even take into account the significant role that humans and human error and human bias play in the understanding of science and research. Kind of just goes into the theme of why we're doing a lot of this, right? Is a lot of this stuff yeah. has been extrapolated as binary, right, wrong. This is the way to do it. This works. This doesn't work. When really there's a lot of nuance and the binary kind of model doesn't work a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's also the social media component that is driving us to do this a little bit because one of the things we found in season one is that people got really bent out of shape about the statistics. You know, well, your p-value is this, so therefore it means this. I don't even need to look at the study. I can just look at that number and tell you everything it already says. And I'm like, no, you need to apply <laughs> yourself. <laughs> so so I think it's a good, a good uh, thing to talk about. We are joined by our first esteemed guest here on the Breaking Beta podcast. Um, today, we've got our friend and fellow power company coach and data analyst, Dale Wilson, with us um, to talk statistics because Dale fucking loves to talk about statistics. And I don't know the first thing about statistics. So I'll say, frankly, Dale can talk better about that than we can For all day. Sure. So. I'll, I'll try not to talk all day, but glad to be here, guys. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. Yeah, life's good. I'm good. Statistics are good sometimes. <laughs> Is there a specific statistical model that's better than the others? I, Just in general, are, in all of uh, life? No, none of them are better than the others, but <laughs> I certainly have favorites, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's get this thing rolling. Clearly, don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Look, you two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready, ready, ready? Dale, I hope that you're ready because we've got a million questions for you and they're, they're complicated questions in my mind because when I look at statistics, that's how it feels to me, complicated. Um, will you start us off with a short explanation of 
why it is we even have statistics in these research papers. Why not just look directly at the results? You know, a lot of these papers have a chart that shows what the results looked like for the participants. Why not just look at that chart and take that directly? Why do we need these statistical models at all? Um, I would say statistics are inc- are useful because they help you understand um, larger patterns and things, even if you don't necessarily have all the pieces of the puzzle at that time. So in a case of like a small sports science study or something, you can't obviously sample like an entire population, but you can design an experiment, have a relatively small sample size for it, but from that sample size, interpret what would maybe happen in a larger population, which is usually how they're used. Um, In terms of why not just like looking at graphs or numbers? I mean, even if you look at like the results of a paper and it gives you like a percent, if you're not looking at like a hundred, like a percent is an is an extrapolation of itself. Like it's a sure. it's a you're looking at a relationship between two numbers that can be expounded or is frequently expounded to mean for like larger groups as well. So I mean, it's a it's an extension of what math is used for in anything, which is to help us wrap our little human brains around phenomenon that we see, try to put order to them. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's probably particularly useful then for, especially for these like climbing and sports science studies that are often very small. Um, Sports science in general often has small sample sizes and climbing studies. You know, Paul and I looked at 10 papers, 11 papers over season one, and most of those sample sizes are pretty damn small you know 10 people or fewer absolutely yeah that's i mean that's uh that's one of the bigger challenges not just in sports science and social science um life sciences how do you get um adequate sample size to say that something means what you think it means and um that you're actually able to control for all the variables that you're looking into i mean that's kind of the biggest biggest challenge for all these things when you look at very simple like uh hard physical science or engineering studies it's a lot easier because you're like here are our variables Mm. and we have much finer control over them it's much easier but when you get into social science um, sports science psychology all these things it's it's much harder and you have to really understand uh what you're working with in order to understand if your experiment's designed well and how how to properly analyze it do you think these statistical models are helpful for kind of getting some of that signal from the noise for these small sample studies? Is it a little bit easier maybe for someone to intuit what like a say you had, you know, a study that had like, you know, an amazing sample size, would you be able to in, like, be able to just see or just look at the data and maybe grasp a little bit more what the meaning of that study is without statistics compared to a super smaller super small sample size or do things still get a little blurry there? No. Okay. Like, uh, you mean like, would you be able to interpret like large data from a, like say that you had like a super large study and it's got all these people, but it doesn't have like statistics on it. Like I think you'd have a really, really hard time pulling anything out of it. So So. the statistical models for these small, uh, studies doesn't necessarily make it, is it, doesn't make it as clear as a larger study with the same statistical models, right? So I think where you're, where you're getting with this is like the confidence interval kind of mindset as well as to like, can you make conclusions with like the same confidence from like a large study versus a small study heading in that direction? And I mean, right. when you look at like the confidence intervals inside of small studies, they're much larger because when you think about it, it's like, how can you determine to a high degree of certainty where like a true mean for something is if you only have like five numbers, but if you were to have like a hundred of numbers in that same range, like you would be able to narrow that range down for where that true mean might be. Thank you for saying what I was trying to ask way better than how I asked it. (laughs) I was was enjoying you struggling through that question because I struggled through these questions in my head all of yesterday and half of today. Yeah. I was like, I was like, where is he going? I think, I think I see it. (laughs) Can you Dale? So I think, if if people have looked at research, they may have heard us talk about it a little bit in season one of Breaking Beta. Um, there's a value 
assigned in a lot of these studies, the p-value. And this comes from statistics and it's my understanding, and I may not have this exactly right, but I think it came from psychology, which you just mentioned um, being one of those areas of research that are a little tougher to pin down. And I think that's why this p-value came about. Is that correct? I think we just pissed off all the climber psychologists that are listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, P-values, I'm not sure if they came from psychology or where specifically they uh, came from, but um, it's essentially a way of stating like what is the probability that the results that you're seeing uh, inside of a study would have been generated if, uh, if your null hypothesis were true. So that'd be like saying, like, whatever you're studying, like, and you're looking at, say, a difference between two groups, what is the probability that whatever you're, con- like, trying to study, like, has zero effect on that thing, and you would have seen those right. results in that setting. Um, so, like, the standard value that's become kind of, not even industry standard, it's, like, across um, across fields, really, is, is yeah. like, 0.05. Um, and it's like arbitrarily determined there's no like really solid reason for that probably easiest to view it as just a probability the probability of again seeing those seeing those results in that situation yeah when i when i've been looking at you know trying to understand p values a little better there's quite a bit of complicated language around it and i think you just described it in a really fairly simple way I think there's a misunderstanding about the p-value that it's saying it's this percentage that chance is what caused this result. Um, that's what I hear a lot of people say, and that's not quite true. It goes back to the null hypothesis, the way that you yeah. just described it. Yeah, it has to it has to be in relation to assumptions about the experiment. Like you always have to go back to that because it's you can't ever really know like what um, it's an estimation. That's the other thing is it's like it's an arbitrary percentage and it's an estimation. Like obviously yeah. you're making this conclusion because you don't have more data to draw upon to like say confidently for it. Yeah. And if the p-value comes out to lower than 0.05, that is determined to be statistically significant. And if it's higher than 0.05, it's statistically insignificant. Correct? Right. Okay. Again, that, that's the that's the summation of it as it exists right now. Um, but normally, when you read read a paper and you're into the the results portions of it, they'll give their like actual p values as to whether it's 0.1 or something like this, mm-hmm. and they can yeah. say like, oh, the results are statistically insignificant. But and then they'll go into more details to kind of define other statistics um, about what they're seeing inside the study, which I think is okay. really beneficial usually. Um, cause like say in a easy example, if you were to read one paper and it has like, uh, like one portion is, uh, like a 0.1 P value, you're like, eh, it's kind of close to 0.05. And then if you see like in another portion, it's like, um, like 0.06, you're like, oh wow, that's like very close. That's very, very close. And right. there might actually be more, if something is like very borderline, it's like 0.049 or something like this. And then you see other results that are. Point zero zero one or something like that. Like the magnitude there is huge. Um, so, you, like it's used as a shorthand for determining statistical significance, but you still have to right. go through and read the results to understand it and what it, what everything being examined in the study means. Got so, it. So it's not just a threshold. It's not you know above this number absolutely means one thing, below this number absolutely means the other. I mean, it's, it's statistics. I don't know about absolutely for any of it. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're meant to be mathematical approximations of large groups that can't be measured. <laughs> That's what it's for. What's the so. saying? All models are wrong, but some are useful. Something some like that. Some are useful. Yeah. <laughs> that, that quote's going to go on the Instagram post for this episode <laughs> for sure. All right. Um, unless you think there's more to explain here, Paul, maybe we jump into a couple of the papers we looked at. Um, and, you know, look at their statistical models and what the p-values were and the significance and kind of break that down a little bit. And the two that we chose are the the two Ava Lopez papers that bookended our season one. Um, so looking at the maximum amount of weight, minimum edge depth, and then the second paper also looked at intermittent hangs. Um, 
And I know you've looked over these, Dale. Is there a specific place you want to start here? If we want to go through their whole statistical methods, that seems kind of boring, but I mean, I'd be happy to go through that. If there's anything in there that you're uh, un, like unclear on or that you think would be interesting to understand, we can go through that. I think it'd be um, cool to go over the, uh, uh, if you can simply explain the ANOVA pr- processes, I think that'd be cool. ANOVA and the ICCs, yeah. We see that in a lot of papers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so ANOVA is an acronym for analysis of variance. Um, essentially, it's a statistical way of analyzing a sample from different groups. And that can be different groups over different times with the same individuals. It can be um, like multiple, more than two groups at the same time. Some ANOVA variations have to be like three over time. Um, but essentially, you're analyzing different groups and you're trying to determine where their central tendency um, actually exists and if that central tendency is different between groups. So if you were looking at like a group before uh, like a certain training intervention and then after a training intervention and then after detraining, like kind of what they're looking at um, in these Eva Lopez studies, like you could determine like a range of where the true mean might be inside of that group and compare that to like where the range of the true mean might be for the next group and so on in time. Um, so that's, that's a very high level overview of what analysis of variance is. And there's a bunch of different types for it. And there's a bunch of different um, like modifications that you can make to it to make it more robust also. Sure. So is that one of the more common ways people look at like, but between or within group differences in studies? Absolutely. Yeah, that's probably the the most. That's your that's your bread and butter for like um any sort of experiment analysis, I would say. And while we're still while p values are still fresh in everybody's head, one of the things that uh stood up was it's kind of kind of standard, but I thought that it was worth noting was one of the modifications they make for the ANOVA in both of these studies is to use what's called Bonferroni adjustment, um, which is a there's a phenomenon where if you repeat um, if you repeat testing over and over on like the same groups, you have like an increased probability or an increased uh, type one error rate inside of the study. And um, Bonferroni adjustment like raises the standard to reach significance um, with successive like measurements. So as you increase your number of like measurements, it takes it from like oh it has to be 0.05 to like oh, it has to be 0.03, then even more, it has to be 0.01. So mm. it's, again, like a way of trying to fight that um, like noise out of the design. So without that, it could be potentially easier to reach that you know, p-value of significance without doing that? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. If you were cool. to like, yeah, do successive measurements of the same people, you're more likely to see things that aren't actually there. Cool. Sweet. So that was a good call on their end to do that as well. Yeah, I, for their stuff, I mean, I don't think the values they're talking about, they would, they had to deal with it, but it's just something that they like comment on it where it's like you see it in the statistical methods and you're like, okay, like this, this is an easy, easy way to go about things and they're trying to be robust. So, Question for you about this study in particular and I mean any of the really small sample sizes that we saw, I think this study ended up with like nine people is that right yeah in two groups yeah, nine people in two groups i think a five and a four yeah, yeah so a, a tiny sample size um we would see a lot of comments from people uh, only 10 people throw this one out the window you know it doesn't matter <laughs> at all um we'd see a lot of that and i'm it curious if we're look. yeah it's very small if we're looking at these small sample sizes does that somehow affect and and is there an easy explanation to how it affects um, how easily or how difficult it will be to reach statistical significance? It will be way harder in a small uh, sample size, I would say, um, because of the, the confidence intervals for the means are going to be massive. Like Got you're it. much more likely to have like massive groups. So if you were trying to prove your um, alternate hypothesis that like this ha- definitely has like an effect and this group is different, then you're going to have a really hard time if you're automatically like stretching those confidence intervals out to show that they're like not overlapping essentially. Okay. Yeah. I, I wondered about that. I had read that it's harder to 
reach statistical significance in a smaller group, but I wasn't exactly sure why. So that makes Absolutely. total sense. Yeah. If you look at uh, the like formula for confidence intervals um, is based off of like the mean and then um, the like Z-score, which is essentially like a standard deviation, like amount of variance measurement. Um, so, but the way that it's calculated, like the more variation there is, like, at, or the smaller the sample size is, like the... It, those groups start to grow like very quickly. Yeah. Like, or the, the range starts to grow, like the, your confidence interval top and bottom become much, much larger with high variation or very small mm -hmm. sample size. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. If we're looking at, uh, the results of the first paper, um, you know, comparing maximum added weight to minimum edge depth hangs, um, and, and in, in different sequences, the charts that we we saw with this paper showed pretty significant gains. That's you know they looked significant, and I don't even know if I'm allowed to use the word significant in a in a different <laughs> context when I'm talking about statistics here, but I'm going to. Someone um, out there just sensed it and started typing a comment <laughs> on their phone. So, and but they did not, I believe, see their p-value get to statistical significance. Is that correct in this first paper? Um, I want to say yes. I think, okay. It was 0.06, um, and then when they controlled for uh, when they controlled for body weight, they ended up having a 0.016, I believe. That's, yeah, that's for the uh, correlation between the strength test and right. the endurance right. test. Right, right. Um, so – so when we're looking at their like all the conclusions that, or the results that they have before that, they're looking at um, purely change in external load. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that's not controlling for body weight at all. Um, and then they wanted to do this correlation between um, their strength test and endurance test values, and they get like a 0.06. So again, not um, statistically significant by the uh, <laughs> 0.05 value. But then they right. break it down where it's like if you control for body weight inside of this, it becomes just statistically significant very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and they see that same phenomenon throughout the rest of the – they perform the same analysis for um, the other strength and endurance tests as well at the different phases in the study. And from just digging into it, just from what I've done, kind of prepping for this episode, kind of reviewing some p-value stuff and all that, would you say this almost like – it's, it makes it even harder to discount it, even though it comes out at 0.06, because they added some of those additional statistical tests to kind of control for that. So they could have, you know, I think the term that gets thrown around is that p-hacking, where people will, mm. you know, manipulate things they do in their study so they can get below that 0.05 uh, value. And it seems like they tried to fight that a good amount, so... You could make an argument that it's like, oh, they're trying to like justify how they would modify this to get below that threshold. But I think they're applying like good uh, like critical reasoning here where in like we intuitively know as climbers that's like, oh, that should include your body weight as well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like that's what you're curious about. Like I was surprised when I first read this that it's like, oh, they're looking at like an external load for this. And it's like, oh, right. this should really be like a total um like total load operating as opposed to like just external so it, it completely makes sense for me to or it makes sense to me for them to do that like i think that's yeah, a very sure. rational extension and then they go through to show it from like test to test to test or point in time to point point in time to point in time to show that like that the significance of this is high and it's repeatable over and over um like throughout the experiment we see that relationship stay true it's not a fluke it doesn't like exist at one time and then disappear like I think it's pretty pretty robust way that they go about investigating that portion. Okay. Cool. Was there more that you saw that was interesting in this paper, Dale? Um, this is in both of them. It's one of the things that I actually really like about this, and you see it in sports science all the time. I know it's pushed in uh, the CSCS, um, like text and education, is the concept of like effect size. Mm. Um, and man, for a lot of people that work inside of like sports science or something if you're working as a coach and you don't have access to like statistical software or something like using effect size is great and it's a real easy way to like look at some variation in the group um and but also just be able to like 
make quick conclusions about like what worked, what didn't. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good thing to be included in there. Like analysis of variance is something that you're probably going to need. I think you can do it in the, yeah, you can do it in the like data analysis tool pack inside of Excel, but usually you need some sort of like beyond that you would need um, something like SAS or using R something like that to do like robust statistical analysis for it. But um, like effect size is something you can knock out in Excel in just a couple minutes. And as a coach, that's pretty cool. Can you define effect size for me? Like what are, what are we talking about exactly when we're, when we're saying effect size is different than, you know, the, the, the significance of the results. So effect size, like for a group, if you were doing it in groups, would just be taking like the mean before and the mean after, and then uh, taking the difference between those two and dividing it by the pooled standard deviation. So everybody in everybody in those groups, um, and that's it. So you, you end up with a with a value um, that should be like one standard deviation would be one. Mm. Like would be like so that would be like a really large effect. They they even give like quantified uh, ranges um, inside the paper for um, like what what's a small effect, like what's a large effect, what's medium. Um, and those are, those are standard also. So it's really, uh, again, it's just like a quick and dirty way to see, to quantify like how much of a change you're seeing. Um, so I like seeing it inside of sports science cause it's something that's like a useful tool to give people. Yeah. I think it's important. I think it's important to have that in there. Um, most practitioners of, you know, who are working with athletes are not statisticians. They, they don't fully understand all of this, um, myself included. Yeah, I, say, I don't fully understand all of this. <laughs> yeah. So, so having something that, like you said, that's a little quick and dirty and we can just go in and look at it and, and see what the effect size looked like. Um, that frankly is a little more important for me than, really paying attention to what all the statistics say. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, just kind of going back on just the, the caption in the data table, how they used a slightly modified, uh, scale for what was small, moderate and large because mm-hmm. they're highly trained individuals. I'm just going back. So when we started talking about effects, as I dug up a textbook that I have that kind of talked about the effect size and all that. And, I guess the standard was 0.2 or less is small, 0.5 is moderate, moderate, and 0.8 is or more is large, not considering trained individuals. So that changes a little bit with how they use that here. And I think that yeah. makes theirs like even more di- like more difficult to more stringent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more stringent to get like a large result because yeah, yeah. I just I just think effect size is a great simple simple thing you can do in a couple of minutes and understand something in a slightly statistical setting but it's not overly complicated yeah i like that it's a good applicable thing anything else in here or in you know that like sort of shows up in both papers that that you find interesting that paul and i are likely overlooking um i'm looking at the table from uh the second paper which is the 2019 i think it was um Mm -hmm. the endurance test based Mm -hmm. paper um that was one of the things where like effect size i thought like really really stood out i thought that was great um for the i think it's the endurance the effect size for um going from endurance test two to endurance test three is a full standard deviation Mm -hmm. it's uh yeah score of one i was like that's that's huge um so i thought that was like it's a, instead of looking at like the confidence and or the uh, like mean plus or minus the standard deviation for those. Like if you're looking at that, you kind of have to think about it. But like when you look at the effect size, it's a really quick way to be like, wow, that's a lot. Like it's a really significant improvement. Um, I think one of the things I thought was kind of funny was uh, they, at, at the endurance test one point in that same paper, um, if you were to look at just like the mean plus or minus standard deviation values from those groups mm-hmm. and they say like oh there's no uh there's no difference between the groups um but if you were to just look at that table you'd be like oh the max hangs group and the intermittent intermittent hangs group have like the same mean and you'd be like the max hang two intermittent hangs group in the middle like you're like that seems way higher um 
but uh, the standard deviation is much larger. So it kind of makes sense that just as like a quick gut check as to why they say that. Originally, when I looked at it, I was like, that means massive, but standard deviation is massive also. So yeah. So if you are looking at those mean numbers, you definitely got to take into account what comes after that plus or minus. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to it's hard to look at one number, look at another number, and make conclusions for populations. But if you include standard deviation, you're like, okay, there's a little bit of understanding about the variance that's seen inside of the group. I think those are those are kind of the big things from the paper. I love that they use the same uh, like the same exact statistical analysis between them. I thought that was great. Well, I think it's a you know it's partially a byproduct of. And and maybe not a byproduct, maybe that's not the right word, Um, but Paul and I have talked about this quite a bit um, throughout season one that one of the things we really like when – that we see in science is someone – Asking a question and then asking the next logical question and then the next logical question and continuing down that rabbit hole rather than throwing everything out and starting over with a new question. Um, And that's something I really appreciate about what Ava is doing here. Uh, And I think the, you know, continuing the same statistical model, the same stringency that she applied to the first study, she's also applying to the second study, I think is really, really smart science as I understand science. Absolutely. Um, I did want to jump back. (laughs) I did want to jump back to one thing that I thought was really cool in the same world of like um, good things that science does, like obviously results need to be repeatable. Like you need to be able to replicate like the same results. And one of like someone else performing the study would need to get something similar. And one of the things I thought was really cool um, of her comparison between the strength test and the endurance test and just running a Pearson's correlation coefficient. So the correlation between those two values, um, we have that same data from our own assessments using the like max hang strength to weight ratio and um, the continuous hang measurement that we do. Mm-hmm. And those are also collinear in our data. We see a really, really, really good um, correlation between those. And we use it for like different diagnostic points inside of the assessment but it was just cool to be like oh yeah we we see the exact same thing <laughs> where yeah it's like awesome i'm not the only one seeing it yes science i really like it when when the things that we're doing are validated <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's one thing to say that like oh that does make sense so, like you can logically reason in your head to be like okay if you're stronger you can be able to hold onto this edge for longer that makes sense mm-hmm. to me it's like but you got to watch yourself and you got to actually like prove it out with some data. You don't just get to run around with hypotheses and be like, I thought this. So yeah, it's probably true. This seems like it would make sense. So I'm going to go this route. Yeah. It's like, you have to got to prove yourself a little bit or prove it to yourself. Yeah. Um, I've got a quote here, Dale, that I would like to read. It's from an article um, on the simply faster website about, statistical significance. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious to get your take on it and yours as well, Paul. <clears throat> An effect can be statistically significant due to a large sample size, but have no real world effect. Conversely, an intervention can have no significant difference in terms of statistics, usually due to a small sample size, but have a large real world effect. More pertinently, when comparing two different interventions, the difference in p-values between them doesn't really tell us anything about the magnitude of these effects, which is more important. No, I think so. I think it's going back to kind of the like p-value gaming aspect and how much do we rely on um, the something reaching that statistical significance threshold and how much does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest challenge with it or problems with it would be like what it pushes people to in science, which is getting away from um, like designing good experiments and embracing their results. It does kind of like force that uh, kind of mindset shift where it's like, Oh, it has to be significant. Otherwise it's not worth publishing. Um, Or like, if you anticipate that like your sample size, so your sample size is going to be small, you're like, it's not going to be significant. We have to do an entirely different experiment or something like this. Um, You know, it occurs to me that almost every system, you could build the best, most perfect system in the world, and it's likely going to fail due to human input into the system. Um, 
you know, many of the most successful hackers look first at just contacting a human who will let them into the system rather than trying to break in via code. You know, it's one of the easiest ways to hack a major company is just talk to a human. And that happens in science as well. We have our own human biases. We we have human error. Research is expensive and researchers want to show a result so that they can get published so they can get more money so they can do more research you know it just makes complete sense that they would want that um and i think as soon as you put human needs and desires into the equation it's always going to have bias and no matter whether science is right and wrong answers only you add humans into the equation and there's going to be some gray area and some iffiness and i think you know there's actually a sentence in the second paper that kind of expl- that kind of is an example of that quote is um, let's see. So the difference is they're talking about the um, significant gains in the uh, grip endurance and how they said, I'm sorry, not significant, <laughs> but the largest gains in one of the groups for grip endurance are probably not significant due to small sample size. But at the same time, we could still get some real world information out of that. Right. I think that's an example of kind of, yeah, small sample size, not significant statistically, but that doesn't mean there's not information in there. And that doesn't mean we can't use these to improve either our performance or someone we're helping improve their performance. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not lost on me at all that, you know, some of the same people who are complaining about small sample sizes and P values that don't show significance are also the same people who will say, well, I did this and it worked. So therefore that must mean this is correct. You know, (laughs) Um, I personally, if I see a result that someone has gotten, even if it's one person in a study, if I see that this worked really well for them, I'm going to look deeper at that. I want to understand why it worked well for them. I may not come to the right conclusion, but it's still something interesting for me to look at um, and and maybe take forward to help the athletes that I work with. Yeah, why not explore it? You know, like there's there could be something there. I think like that, that's a really good point. I think it kind of plays into when you're reading, like when you're reading the whole paper for these two studies, for example, or any study, like you don't get to like just hop to the results of something and be like title said max hangs and this <laughs> this says that these results are like they saw the biggest group so or biggest improvement so like thus max hangs are the best for something like you don't get to do that you, <laughs> you still have to go through the work of like going through the paper and when you do that's where like the important parts come out to you and they don't like make themselves you're not going to get like anywhere near the value out of it by just like skimming for like, was it this or was it that? Like you can't do the like binary thinking portion of it. You got to look at like, how is the, how is the study built? How would you build it differently? If you were to repeat it, like what would you change about it? What did you think about their methods for evaluating it? What did you think about like the edge they were using for this? How would you change that? Like, is there another obvious group that you wish had been included in the study that you, that wasn't moot and like going through like, piece by piece. And when you're doing that, you're actually going to come up with way more satisfying and interesting answers and problems than just like a yes, no, like this one works, this one doesn't. Like, I mean, I don't know. There was like a real dark period in climbing probably like four or five years ago where it was like maybe even longer than that, where it was just like, which is better, repeaters or max hangs? And you couldn't get away (laughs) from that question. You couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere. Dale, I'll tell you what, uh, Nate and I went to a presentation by Ava and, uh, after the presentation, after she had done an amazing job of explaining that there is no best protocol, (laughs) she took questions and I bet you the first seven questions were, well, but how much weight do you suggest hanging with? And (laughs) are, you know, would, should we hang three times or five times? Which do you think is better? six seconds or eight seconds. And, you know, I was just mind boggled because these were really intelligent people asking those questions. And I'm sure she handled it like a professional because she she was was a champ, the foremost (laughs) expert on this stuff. But like, yeah, like she knows that this is not like, it's not black or white. It's not cut and dry. It's not simple. Like 
she's built entire studies around like what climbers to choose for each of these groups who who would like she's just the expert on it and isn't looking for like short answers like that and I think you have to like set that kind of as your goal when you're thinking about these things is like, how do the best do it? And it's like, Eva Lopez does this as her job and yeah. thinks about everything that goes into this. What's a robust like study design. What are the different groups that you'd want to do in it? And you have to like apply that same kind of critical thinking to your own training and for your clients, the same thing where it's like, you can't just yeah jump to results and it says like, Oh yeah, in this one paper, like by Eva Lopez, it says they did this and it was better. So yeah, uh, Max Hangs, always Max Hangs. <laughs> what if I just finished doing Max Hangs? Probably more Max Hangs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be great if you could, but really, that isn't reality, and it can get frustrating. You know, we we want to look at research that took a long time, that cost a lot to do, and we want to derive from it the answer. You know, I'm sure the researchers want the answer too, but that just isn't how it works. You, you're not going to get the answer immediately. It's, you're going to have to go down a rabbit hole for quite a long time. And if you do that, you'll be better off for it, for sure. It's just not the easy path. Absolutely. And you can look at sports science in general. There's, there's been this controversy, big argument going on in sports science the last few years, um, quite a number of years actually, about statistical models, which is the best to use. Um, There's been this MBI, uh, magnitude-based interference, has been pitched and used by some uh, researchers and, and other researchers are saying it's a completely useless thing. It's, it's made up. It doesn't hold up mathematically. Um, and, and there's a lot of argument about that. And I think if, you know, the, the general sports science world and the general medicine science world can still be arguing about the statistical models that are best to use, then thinking that you're going to get an answer from, you know, the answer from one paper is a, is a little bit insane you know in the widely massive largest sport in the world that is rock climbing like (laughs) (laughs) i've got a it's incredibly well funded yeah well funded most (laughs) researched out of all the sports out there like (laughs) (laughs) i've got a quote from uh an article in the journal uh plus one by keith lossie uh, in a paper called Systematic Review of the Use of Magnitude-Based Interference in Sports Science and Medicine that I thought was really great. Uh, he looked at all the papers he could find that use this MBI uh, model to try and understand it better. And he says, amidst debates over the role of p-values and significance testing in science, MBI also provides an important natural experiment. We find no evidence that moving researchers away from p-values or null hypothesis significance testing makes them less prone to dichotomization or overinterpretation of findings. <laughs> I like that. Publish or perish. This is how it goes. <laughs> it's pretty on the nose. Anything we're missing here, Dale? I think if people are curious about learning more about statistics, um, there's a bunch of great books out there and there's a bunch of free resources um, online, none of which I can think to the top of my head right now, but we, I could make a list and we can throw it at the end of the episode, something like yeah, that. Yeah, let's, let's do that. I'll, I'll have a, a list of things in the show notes for folks and on the, the blog post at powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking dash beta. Okay. Yeah, I think, uh, I think having a basic understanding of statistics, even if it's not something that you use every day or mm-hmm. anything like that, um, I think it's really powerful. It'll change the way that you think about problems and how you think about results. Um, yeah. And hopefully make you ask better questions in your work and your life and rock climbing. I mean, it's pretty powerful stuff and that can, yeah, definitely change how you approach problems. So. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so happy that you're our first guest. This won't be your last appearance on Breaking Beta. I'm fairly sure that. I'm Mm-mm. glad that you're on this team and we have you to lean on when it comes to this stuff. Glad to be here.
Thanks for having me. You can find both Paul and I all over the internet by following the links in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee, though he's not there as often these days because he's he's moving up, got more people working for him. We got a great team at the gym. It's great. I love it. Uh, you can also work with Dale through powercompanyclimbing.com or you can buy a mini assessment and let him crunch the numbers for you, which he is quite good at. And if you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. Please tell all of your friends who believe that p-values and statistical significance are the only things that matter, that you have the perfect podcast for them. And we will see you next week when Paul and I discuss how we choose papers, how we read them, and whether or not you need to go beyond the abstract to get the gist. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you guys next time. It's done. You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning, and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Club Tonario. 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 Club